Hello and welcome to the Startups Roundtable. I'd like to start with an acknowledgement of country. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet. Here in Sydney, it's the Gadigal people. We pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging and extend our respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. Hi and welcome to the Startups Roundtable. Today's guest is Laura Francois and she is a co-founder of The Spaceship, which is an online entrepreneurship masterclass taught through impact strategy to enable more entrepreneurs to solve for the sustainable development goals. And Laura does this by aligning the entrepreneur's life purpose and the global challenges we face collectively. Laura is also a founding member of Open Door Policy, a not-for-profit focused on upskilling marginalised communities that lack access to traditional employment, such as refugees and stateless people, for remote digital employment. With a focus on collaboratively designing systems for sustainable development, While leveraging the startup ecosystem, philanthropy and the creative economies, we had a lot to explore in this conversation. So over to Laura. I've spent the last 10 years of my life in the so-called impact space, so focused on environmental and social impact, you know, very traditionally through nonprofits and working with policymakers and so on. And I guess in the the more recent years, in the last five years or so, I've realized that there's a real, real interesting pattern that's happening when business starts to take hold of these challenges and starts solving for these challenges. And so what I've what I'm kind of all about is marrying the business space with the impact space um, to really find longevity of impact and to make sure that, you know, there is sustainability in the impact that we're trying to have. Um, and I really think that entrepreneurs are key to doing that. I'm a fellow entrepreneur. I I, I run my own projects and have been based in and out of Southeast Asia for the last six years on and off, mainly in Singapore and Malaysia. And I had a very big focus on the fashion industry, uh, not because I'm not really into the, shop, the shopping aspect or the glossy magazines or the designs, but I'm really, really interested in fashion as a system because everyone wears clothes, hopefully. I mean, if you don't, all good, but most people do. And most people can understand the importance of the fashion industry, and yet we know so little about the implications it's having on a global scale in terms of the effects it's having on our on our economies, on the bottom of the pyramid, and our environment. So it's just been the most interesting place for me to navigate, and that's where I've been for the last little while. So, Laura, when you introduce and driving a conversation around change, there's one thing to drive change with individuals, but also with larger groups, so to drive through large communities such as businesses, could you maybe think to or share how you think about approaching the smaller groups through to the larger groups to first encourage the change, but then to sustain the change? Mm. That's a great, that's a really great question because it's such a different strategy on both ends, but we need both. And there's kind of a space in the middle where we're constantly trying to connect, you know, this macro vision and this micro vision. And I think a lot of it has to do with understanding how the system that you're trying to change works. So I always go back to this idea of systems thinking. So as an individual, what part do you play in the system? And as an organization, big or small, what part do you play? And even just the understanding, the recognition of all of the externalities that you might be affecting. So for example, you know, if you're a t-shirt company and you're producing organic t-shirt, are you keeping tabs on all of the possible negative effects of this good thing that you're trying to do? You know, you're trying to create this new market for ethical products, but 
Are you thinking through the CO2 emissions when you're shipping these products around the world? Are you thinking about, there's just so many parts of the puzzle um, when you're a larger organization that you might be touching upon that you might not even realize. And I think the key in both cases is the same, is, is just constantly keeping tabs on on where your system, what affects your system. So where does it play? And what are the types of things that are happening with it? And it's ever changing. That's the thing. It's never a one answer because it's evolving. And in this time of COVID, I mean, the one thing we realize is just how quickly things can evolve. So regardless, change has to do, I think, with understanding the system you're in. When you look at your own goals and and measuring your own progress, what are the sorts of metrics and, and KPIs you put there for yourself? And what sort of metrics would you look to put into an organization to give them achievable early goals, but to also create a momentum? It's difficult because I, I was just having a conversation this morning about the sustainable development goals, the SDGs that were created for 2030. We are supposed to reach these 17 goals that are supposed to bring our planet together. There's no way we're reaching it by 2030. Whoever put in that KPI, I mean, was dreaming in Technicolor, but we needed the momentum to feel that urgency. And I think that urgency is what a lot of larger organizations need is, is, yes, it has to be realistic, but there needs to be this urgency, especially on the climate front. It's so interesting how we've gone from a climate change, that was the way we talked about the whole issue around climate is climate change, but now it's transitioned to climate emergency. You can't use the word climate change anymore. And so I think organizations, no matter what industry you're in, has to see these long-term 2030 goals that we have unanimously as part of the business plan, because ultimately there is not going to be any business. I mean, there won't be any space for businesses to run fruitfully like they are post-2030 if we don't address them. So I think on an organizational front, I think it's always just trying to match what's happening out of the industry. Don't think of just the silo of the industry. Think of how it's kind of broaching the topic universally. And and I think the same for my life. I've worked with in the fashion industry, but I've also worked in the refugee space. I've also worked in the startup space. All of them are maybe seemingly unrelated, but it's crazy when you start thinking about what types of goals each type of project or industry is looking towards achieving and they do overlap. But I think that cross-pollination is what we need when it comes to setting goals. Laura, you drive the change through your vision and your mission and your passion and energy, but also know that you're, you're structuring a formal way to help people think about this and to embrace it. Could you maybe share a little bit about that? The ways I like thinking about the output of all of this I don't know. I I am very energetic around this topic. I love nerding out about it. So where do I put all of that? And how do I make sure I'm not the boring, you know, person who speaks too much at a cocktail party? I think it's through two things. I teach systems thinking and I I teach circular economy for adults who are in the corporate world who are interested in transitioning to this new economy and trying to figure out how. I think a lot of people feel like they need to give up everything that they're doing and completely have a career makeover to take part in this space. So a lot of what I try doing is coaching and teaching how you can actually apply. Don't think of your life as this silo. Think of your expertise in marketing as something that the impact world needs and, and so on and so forth. And I do that through more recently through my startup called The Spaceship. And we essentially teach first-time entrepreneurs who are first-time in the impact space. So you might have had lots of experience launching businesses, but the first time trying to actually integrate impact in the DNA of what it is that you're doing. And that looks very different than incorporating a corporate social responsibility project or a, a great, I don't know, a great 
activism offshoot. It's very different when it's kind of the building blocks of what it is you're doing. So I teach that through a, a self-paced program online. And I'm really excited about that because I think that's where the new frontier is, essentially. When you start working with maybe a second time entrepreneur or founder who maybe starts to engage with you thinking they've got it kind of worked out, but they're happy to explore, could you maybe share a couple of aha moments for them and also for you? Yeah. Well, I've had a few. I mean, I, I always have new ones. So if you were to ask me next week, I'll have a different answer. But recently, it's been thinking about two things. It's one is, oh, I actually need to still be making money if I'm in the impact space. It doesn't just mean charity. I mean, we think of things so in such a binary way when it comes to impact. You know, it's either I make a load of money or I don't. But it's not. It's not mutually exclusive. That one keeps recurring. And and the other thing is rethinking scale. We've really, really um, tainted our view of scalability as a core component of being successful. If you're going to be successful, you need to be able to scale. But it really depends on the problem you're trying to solve. I speak to entrepreneurs all the time who are solving really important problems that are localized. And it doesn't mean that the solution to them will be the solution for the same problem everywhere in the world. And they're hesitant to you know, work on that project or launch that, that product because they're thinking, well, I can't scale and that's what investors want and that's what everyone wants to see. And that's unfortunate because that problem will continue to persist unless someone realizes, no, it's still worth, there is still worth in solving for that. So I think scalability has just been this catch-all phrase in the startup world that's preventing a lot of really important solutions to come to life. Could you take me a little bit behind your enterprise and, and how you structure it, decision-making. What you're doing now isn't the first time you've started up. You spoke about clothing industry six years ago, and it's a really interesting history that you have. Could you maybe share some changes in how you were making decisions maybe three years ago versus now, and what's driven some of those changes? I've been doing a lot of reflecting on that given the pandemic. And you know, what does leadership mean in this time when I've never, I've met my co-founder a few times, but you know, don't have that close knit relationship as I would if we were in the same city. You know, my first few hires have been <laughs> completely remote. It's so interesting at this time to reflect on that. But what I will say is I've been thinking a lot about having the audacity to change your mind as a leader, to change your mind on the way you want to, the way you want to frame something, the way you go about doing business, the way even in whatever the core beliefs you have about the problem you're trying to solve. I think thought leaders were told that, oh, if you're a thought leader in a space, it means you have the silver bullet to figure out how that's done or what that space needs. And I think what's evolved for me is realizing that nobody has the answer to anything because the problem is constantly evolving. And so this idea of it, the iterative nature of the startup world, where we're going to change at any moment, we'll be able to pivot it's harder to do that in mindset. And so what's evolved for me is, is how to be a, a leader, but still be okay with shifting and iterating my mindset. Because what I believed last year was the most important thing for us to solve, or what, what my core belief was in the space may not be true. And so that podcast I did is irrelevant. And that, talk, that TED talk makes no sense. And being okay with that has been a challenge and also this really fantastic aha moment. You've just made me think about activities I've been working through over the last number of weeks. I work with a tech company and we're going through different account planning processes, bringing together broad teams from across multiple geographies, which is nothing unusual. Organizations do it. You do your own strategic planning. 
But when we've done it in previous years and we've thought about what does the next year mean and then we start to think what does two years out and three years mean, totally different conversation this year. So as you do your strategic planning, you're thinking about that horizon one, horizon two, horizon three, how do you think about that for this venture that you've started now? Mm, I'm thinking of it when we talk about transition, whether it's And by the way, I always have hated this question of what's the, not that you're asking me this question, but what's the five-year plan? What's the 10-year plan? Because in systems thinking, going back to systems thinking, systems are so complex that there's no way you'd be able to navigate them and foreshadow what it would look like. Clearly, we've, we've all been dosed in that this year. But in terms of strategic planning, I've noticed that when I think about transitions and in growth, you know, what are we going to do when we launch? What are we going to do when we, you know, transition to our next phase? What does that look like? I do see it as it's never leaving A to go to B. It's kind of, the transition actually doesn't work so linearly. It actually kind of works horizontally, as you say, building upon itself. Um, Whereas in previous ventures, I really thought of it as something linear, as, as phases that we're going through. Whereas right now, I think maybe it's because we're so decentralized and we're not in person and we're having to rethink how to do things. We're actually seeing it as, well, we're going to maybe need to have a team that focuses on phase one and another that focuses on phase two and we do things simultaneously because that's just going to be the nature of how things move forward. There's no more graduation in terms of this type of growth, at least in the space that I'm in and the way I see things with this with this pandemic. When you start to test new ideas, how do you go about running experiments and, and where do you look for trends? What's the data that you go looking for? I did a few a few years of my life in the tech space in the UX space. So user experience research to me is still the, I'd say is my is my North Star when it comes to testing out. I, I think it's the same no matter what industry you're in, being able to just go out on the street. But what's interesting to me has been to really look towards what is happening in the industry that have nothing to do with my own to find these trends. So the, going back to this idea of not having silos. So for example, for me, I'm, I'm in the education, right now I'm in the education space and the in this impact education space, but really looking towards, you know, what are accelerators and deep tech doing? What is the biomimicry space doing? Because there's, there's something really magical about this. How do you say like very, very almost bipolar thinking of having very disparate thoughts, disparate companies that have nothing to do with each other. I've always found that that's where the big ideas will will emerge. The design thinking space does this all the time. And I love exercising this idea of like, if you wore someone else's shoes, if you were an architect for a day, how would you approach this problem? If you were a comedian for a day, how would you approach this problem? Um, And so I try to do that. I actually try to have as many conversations with people who are outside of my industry, who have absolutely nothing to do with what it is that I'm working on to give me their two cents. And that's where I'm able to kind of start tracking trends. That might just be me. I don't know how long this experiment of, you know, this working will last, but it's been great so far. I love that answer. And that's very meaningful to me. I agree and follow your approach. And that is, if I'm looking at the banking industry or retail or whatever it might be, I try to think about what they are as an audience business. And I was inspired by a friend of mine, maybe 15 years ago. I remember, I still remember the presentation he gave and it was to a group of executives from a major bank. And he put up a screenshot of people in a picture theater in a cinema and with popcorn looking up. And he said, the common ground between us and you is we're both audience businesses. And that has stuck with me ever since. So when you talk about UX, 
It's about what does the audience absorb? And if you can't understand a person's audience or a company's audience, then you're nothing more than a, a theoretical discussion because it can't land anywhere. So the way you've described it, just, just fantastic. I also had the same company I was working with at the time. They had employed a, a stack of people from a major online retailer to build an experimentation business unit. And it was considered that important that the leader of that group actually reported to the CEO. So this whole idea of having a pulse of the nation and actually truly understanding behaviors and how that could actually, we could impact behaviors was core to not just the beliefs, but the actual practices. So that, I think there's a fantastic answer and that's just very meaningful. I, I love that this is yeah that you re, that you find this mirroring in your own work because I I've even gone as far recently to well recently in the last couple of years to work with artists because they are the most divergent thinkers that I've found and they're always valued for their output the art that they create but the process that they have the creative process that they adopt I've been using in my business in the way I strategize and the way I. I work with my team and, and, and I just think, yeah, the more, the more quirky, the better at this point. And, and that's just been a breath of fresh air. Laurie, talk about teams. I wonder if you could give some commentary to diversity and inclusion from your experiences and how you're thinking about that as you build your own enterprise. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough one because it's always a struggle when you're as a first as a first time founder, it's a struggle to know what to do. And then you gain some experience and you realize, yeah, but with this business, it's different than the last. And so hiring is not the same. What I've realized is Simon Sinek talks about finding your why. To me, this is still the the gut, the gut feeling I I get when I'm working with someone who has such a strong why especially I think in this space where financing of these types of projects doesn't come necessarily as easy, though the impact investment space has grown. It, it's not a walk in the park. Finding people who have this strong why is, I mean, I, I look for that before I look at their CVs. And then similarly, it's interesting. I also, on this topic of cross-pollination or having divergent thinkers, Finding individuals who are fantastic at their craft, but that may not have had any necessary experience in the impact space or in this in this specific space has been so key. And, and I think it's coming from a background in the nonprofit space where we're always looking for a very, there's a very traditional sense when it comes to hiring, very much like the corporate world. It's been interesting to be able to find individuals who, yeah, who have never done anything like this, but are really, really darn good at what they do and have a really strong why, that's really changed my hiring practice in terms of, yeah, in terms of inclusion of, and I'm not talking about, I know diversity and inclusion can go in so many different directions, but just speaking about, about the person. I've also, I help run a nonprofit called Open Door Policy, and we were in the service of training refugees and asylum seekers um, who are waiting for relocation. And so I think a lot of my hiring practices is informed by my work in in helping to direct this nonprofit where you know training individuals who have no background so this idea of open hiring what does that look like when you don't have proof of birth certificate or CVs what does that look like and so that's always really been i mean that's always top of mind for me that's a wonderful reflection and thank you for sharing the the breadth of that. I'm wondering if you could maybe close for us today with a comment if there was a founder or a future founder listening to this and they wanted some advice on looking for mentors and coaches. What mm -hmm. would your advice be to them? 
oh man, if you find a good one, let me know. Um, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm, I think for me, it's always been, but there, there are moments when you want to listen and you, and you want, and you're ready to receive mentorship or coaching. And there are moments when you think you are, but you, you, re, you actually, you're actually not, you're very, you're, you're still very much in your own, I'd say in your own mental chasm, if you will, where feedback is not necessarily what you're willing to to absorb. And to me, I've come across fantastic coaches and mentors informally in my life, but had not been ready to have that type of relationship. And so though I don't know, though I don't have a, a you know, a silver bullet to say where to find them, but self-reflection to understand whether or not you're in a place to receive the type of guidance that you're looking for is a question I don't think we ask ourselves enough. I'm always searching for coaches for myself, but don't necessarily realize that the chapter I might be in might not be the best one for me to have that coaching and, and mentorship relationship. So my advice would really just to be to check in with yourself and figure out what exactly is it that you need. Is it, is it strategy? Is it uh, motivation, accountability? And when you ask for something specific, it's more likely you'll receive. That's a brilliant answer. And it's very generous for you to actually reflect truly to provide the answer. It's too easy to respond to that question with a, a rote response. So thank you. And Laura, it's been a joy meeting with you today. Thanks for taking the time and taking us inside your new venture and sharing from the experiences that you've had. It'll be tremendous to stay in touch and to see how you progress. So thanks a lot. I really appreciate you having me on the show. All the best. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Laura as much as I did. Feedback is always appreciated. And that's it for today. Thanks for listening and bye for now.